Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle John's revelation of Jesus Christ. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. We are continuing in our study of the book of Revelation. We have gotten as far as chapter 1, verse 9. I am purposefully going slow through all of this because, as I said in the introduction to the book, this is the apocalypsis, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. And this first chapter is all about Jesus Christ, who you're going to see throughout the rest of the book. And so the details of what John has to say here about Jesus 
are all very important, and that is why we've been taking the time to look into the details and compare the details with what Scripture has already told us about Jesus, who he is, what he has accomplished, and what he's planning to do in the future. So I'm purposefully taking my time through this. I know that every once in a while someone will say, I'm really just interested in the 666. Will you please just get to... I just want to know who the Antichrist is, Jim. Just tell I just want to know that whole buy-sell trade thing. Tell us how to avoid that. But we have to remember that the book is the unveiling of Jesus Christ. It is a prophecy about him. It's a prophecy from him that was given to him by God himself. Jesus then sent it by an angel and it was declared to John, who refers to himself as the slave of Christ. And then he's giving that revelation, that uncovering, to the other slaves who belong to Christ. And that's the way the book opens, so that we realize the relationship between the Almighty and we who serve him, we who belong to him. Yet again, we're going to learn more about him starting at verse 9. John introduces himself for a third time in the book and says, I, John, am your brother and fellow partaker in, and the Greek does have the word thee there. There is a definite article in the tribulation. So we have to begin by talking about that. Boy, we got, what, eight words in before we have to stop and talk about it? The fact that it says, I am a fellow partaker, a brother, an Adolphus with you in the tribulation, has caused people to say, well, then what John is referring to here is the great tribulation, the time of trouble such as never was or ever would be again, the time that Jeremiah, Daniel, and Jesus all talked about. And so he's saying that he's going through the tribulation, and then he's going to be caught up to heaven after that. And that is used peculiarly to say that this is proof, this is evidence, that the church is going to go through that time of tribulation and trouble. Because after all, John says, I am a fellow partaker in the great tribulation. Except that the word great is not there. What it actually does say is, I am participant along with you. I am your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation. So what is he talking about? Well, I think he's referring to the very thing that Jesus has already predicted. Jesus has already told us that here in this world, living as Christian people, living as people who belong to God, we are going to have trouble. We are going to have distress. The Greek word here is thalipsis, and it means a squeezing. In fact, the, the picture word is very much like if you have a rug that's full of dirt and dust, and you take it outside to clean it. The best way to clean the dust out of a rug is by beating it, and that's how you remove the dust from the rug. Or the way that you separate wheat from chaff is that you beat the kernels of wheat to separate the wheat and the chaff. Or the way that you get wine out of grapes, by squeezing it, stomping it. 
Well, that's the word thalipsis. It means you're going to have difficulty in this lifetime. You're going to have trouble in this lifetime. You're going to have tribulum in this lifetime. It's not going to go easy on you. Jesus himself said, woe to you when all men speak well of you. I don't know about you. I'm a friendly guy. I like to get along with people. And yet, for some reason, wearing T-shirts like this gets me in trouble. This is why, as Christian people, we have so much struggle in the world. Because it is a godless, not righteous, not God-fearing world. And when you proclaim openly that you belong to Jesus Christ, you're like a big, red, flashing neon sign letting people know that judgment does exist and God does exercise his right as a righteous judge, as the holy judge, to judge human beings. And people don't like that idea. And so the best way to stop that is to get you to just shut up. And if you won't shut up, they will bring tribulum into your life. Okay, so John 16, Jesus speaking says, These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace, but in the world, here's the contrast, in me there's peace. In me I'm making peace between you and God. You, the sinner, God, the holy, righteous one, I am creating peace between the two of you, the stopping of the againstness that is between you and God. But then he says, but in the world, it's going to be just the opposite. In the world, you will have tribulation. Exact same word that John uses. You're going to have philipsis. You're going to have difficulty. In Christ, peace. In the world, Trouble. Can I get a witness? I mean, this is a God-hating world, and it's getting crazier by the day. There's an article that I read a couple of months ago that was entitled, Everything is Stupid. And that is now my new catchphrase. I just look at the world and I go, everything is stupid. And yet, in Christ, we're promised peace But that same Christ promised us that in the world we would have tribulation. And then he says, but take courage. I have overcome the world. So if we're in Christ, then the trouble of this world is just passing. The trouble of this world is not permanent. This world is not our home. So now Jesus has told us that in the world we're going to have tribulation. Is that the same as Philipsis Megas? See, you don't even need to know Greek to know what Megas means. That's moved right into the English language. Mega, mega tribulation. It's just translated tribulation the great or the great tribulation. Matthew 24, 21 says, For then there will be, Jesus speaking prophetically, for then there will be a great tribulation, a megas tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will be again. So Jesus speaks of a time 
where there's going to be so much squeezing and pressure and trials and tribulum on the planet, then it's going to be like nothing that ever happened before. Okay, so imagine the things that have happened in the history of this world. Terrible, cataclysmic things. Earthquakes that have destroyed whole cities. Plagues that have killed thousands and millions. Wars. People killing people by the million. And, and people like Pol Pot, people like Hitler. Situations like North Korea. Situations in this world that when we look at them, we have to say, well, this is horrible. This is awful what's going on. Jesus says, you ain't seen nothing yet. There is a time of trouble coming such as never was. Now, I doubt that when John was on the Isle of Patmos, that during those few years that he was there, breaking rocks and receiving the revelation, I doubt that he's saying, this is the worst thing that ever happened ever, and there will never be another time like it. Because he said that before all the other things that I've listed. He said that before Hitler. He said that before the great world wars. And so when he says, I am your brother and your fellow partaker in the tribulation, I think he's talking about the trouble of this world. Think about John. John has been driven out of Jerusalem. Peter, John, and James were the elders in Jerusalem. 70 AD comes. Jerusalem is destroyed. The Jews who are living in Jerusalem become part of the diaspora, part of the scattered. And they are living now out among Gentile nations. John ended up in Ephesus. And now he's ending up on this rock island off the coast of Ephesus. He knows what it's like to have trouble. That's the point. He knows what it's like to live through tremendous tribulation. And so he can rightly say, I am a fellow partaker in the difficulties that the church is undergoing right now. This is the time of Domitian. This is the time when Christians are being sacrificed. This is the time after Nero, when Nero was lighting Christians on fire to light his garden, or feeding Christian families to lions for the amusement of people in the Colosseum. This is trouble. This is tribulum. This is unlike anything you and I have had to live through yet. And John could say, I'm brother with you. I am a fellow partaker in the trouble of this world. Now, by the way, since I mentioned Jesus referring to the great tribulation and contrasting that to the tribulum of this world, Jesus didn't just make that up. It's something that was prophesied all the way back in the book of Daniel. In Daniel 12, the first two verses, he receives this vision from Gabriel, who is describing Michael. Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. And there will be a time of distress such as has never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Okay, so Daniel talked about a time 
of such great trouble that there'd be nothing like it before or after. That's what Jesus was referring to in Matthew 24. He wasn't revealing some new thing. Instead, what he was doing was validating what Daniel had already said. And interestingly, when Jesus brings it up, he casts it into the future. So Daniel prophesied it and cast it into the future. Jesus validated it, verified it, and then put it out into the future again. Have we seen yet since Jesus that time of trouble that Daniel predicted? No. I'd have to say no. That's why we still talk about the coming great tribulation. By the way, one more little detail about the Great Tribulation. Jeremiah, the prophet, also mentions the Great Tribulation and then says this really interesting thing about it. Jeremiah chapter 30. I'm going to start reading at verse 4. These are the words which the Lord spoke concerning Israel and Judah. For this is what the Lord says. I have heard a sound of terror of fear, and there is no peace. Ask now, and see if a male can give birth. Obviously, the answer is no, men don't give birth. That's how crazy the world is. They can't even tell anymore that men can't have babies. But anyway, the Bible declares it. Ask now if a male can give birth. The answer is no. So Jeremiah asked, why do I see every man with his hands on his waist? In pain is a woman in childbirth. And why have all the faces turned pale? Woe, for that day is great. There is none like it. It is the time of Jacob's trouble, and yet he will be saved from it. The time of Jacob's trouble. That's the nickname that Jeremiah has now given to the great tribulation. So then Jesus comes to the planet, comes to his own, and his own receive him not. And as he's speaking among the Jews, he validates what Daniel the prophet has said is coming to Israel that Jeremiah has nicknamed the time of Jacob's trouble that Jesus then validated. You can see why John, who is an apostle to the circumcised, would talk about the trouble, the great trouble, because it's Israel's trouble. And Israel is going to be carried through it. And that is one of the many evidences of why the church is not assigned to it. It's why Paul would say that we are not determined by God to go through his wrath. Because we're the church, that's Israel, and this is the time of Jacob, Israel's trouble. Now, why do I go through making those distinctions? Because that can't be what John's talking about here. I, John am your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation, number two, in the kingdom. I told you last week that we're going to see lots and lots of kingdom language in the book of Revelation. As we continue going through the book, we're going to have to talk about the kingdom in some great detail. But this reference to the kingdom can only be a reference to one of two things. It is either the kingdom because God right now is sitting on his throne, ruling over his creation, therefore he is the king of his creation. Or all of the prophets in the Old Testament all speak with one voice. They all promise that Israel has a glorious future that includes a kingdom 
in which Jesus, David's greater son, is sitting on his throne from Jerusalem, ruling over the collective 12 tribes who have been brought back to the land of Israel. That's what the Old Testament says over and over and over and over again. That kingdom is the kingdom that is promised particularly to Israel. That kingdom, by the way, is why at the beginning of the book of Acts, Jesus, after his resurrection, spends 40 days talking to his apostles. And Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, even tells us what he was talking about. For 40 days, he talked about the kingdom. At the end of that, their question to him is, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel at this time? So their expectation, after 40 days of listening to Jesus himself talk about the kingdom, their expectation is that kingdom that is promised throughout the Old Testament still belongs to Israel. Are you going to give it to us now? I mean, you're the great king. They can't even kill you. And throughout the Old Testament, it is promised that when the Messiah comes, he's going to establish the kingdom. So they killed you. You're alive. Are you going to do the kingdom thing now? That's a time question. Are you going to do it at this time? His answer is a time answer. Not yet. It's not for you to know the times, the seasons that the Father keeps in his own hands. So Jesus did not say, no, you fools. The kingdom doesn't belong to you. The kingdom is now spiritualized. The kingdom now belongs to the church in some ultra-spiritual way. All he said to them was, not yet. In other words, it still belongs to Israel. So, when John says, I am a brother and a fellow partaker in the tribulation, he's talking about the difficulties, the trials of this world. And I am a fellow partaker in the kingdom. Whether you're going to say that's God sitting on his throne right now ruling over his creation, or whether you're going to say that's the coming kingdom that is promised throughout the Old Testament, that's validated by Jesus. Whichever of those two kingdoms he's talking about, he's writing to the people who were also fellow partakers in that coming kingdom. And John says, I'm just like you. I'm a fellow partaker in the tribulation and the kingdom and the perseverance. Hupomone is the Greek word. It means to remain under. Hupo, under. Hypodermic, under skin. It means to stay under. But it also has this implication to it. That it's not just endurance because you're under the pressure and under the tribulation. But that you're willing to endure that with a cheerful heart. You're willing to be patient as you continue in this waiting for the thing to come. Now, if you put those three words together... It fits perfectly his use of hupomone. Because what he has said is, I'm with you in the difficulty. I'm with you in the tribulation. And I'm with you in the kingdom. In the world, you're going to have tribulation. In Christ, in the kingdom, you're going to have peace and glory. Therefore, as you're going through the troubles of this life, as you're going through the trials, the tribulum of this world, as you are under it, look cheerfully forward to what's coming. And that is why we're willing. That is why we're able 
to get through the troubles of this world because we know this is not the end. We know there's a brighter day coming. We know there's a kingdom coming. We know there's a return of Christ coming. We know there's a catching away coming. We know that there's a glorious future for Christ's church where we are going to be fellow heirs with him in everything that God has granted to him. There is all of this marvelous stuff coming. And so we stay under the troubles, the tribulum of this life, and we endure it with perseverance and patience because of the hope that lays out in front of us. That's a brilliant phrase. But do you see why we had to take the time to go through it? By the way, I also like the fact that this is John, the last living apostle. This is John who could have very easily said, listen up, I know what I'm talking about, I'm John, jump back, Jack. I mean, he could have said, John, dig me, John. And instead, he describes himself in such humble terms. And he describes himself as being just like everybody else who belongs to Christ. He does not vaunt himself. He does not lift himself up. He does not express himself in egocentric ways. He says, I'm one of you. I am fellow participant, brother, fellow partaker in the tribulation and the kingdom and the perseverance which are in Jesus. That means that the trouble that we're going through in this life is in Jesus. And the patience with which we endure it is in Jesus. And the kingdom that we are promised is in Jesus. So the answer to all of this is Jesus Christ. But notice that even the tribulation is in Christ Jesus. And this, to me, boy, when I got a hold of this 20 years ago, it changed my life. Suffering in this lifetime. Suffering for a Christian has purpose. And I used to think that suffering was either arbitrary or I thought that God was just capricious or maybe even that God was mean. The God I grew up with in the Lutheran church was a God who was just waiting around for me to slip up and do something wrong so that he could pounce on me and punish me. And then I learned about the God of grace from the Bible and the fact that he is sovereign and the fact that he is in control of his universe and the fact that there is nothing that reaches us here in this lifetime that doesn't first pass through nail-scarred hands. Nothing gets to us. None of the tribulation of this life gets to us except through Jesus. says so right here. And that means... That it's not purposeless. That means that it's not arbitrary. That means that the difficulties of this life, whatever difficulties you're going through, are specific to you. Because you need those difficulties to get you all the way home. Those difficulties, those troubles, the tribulation of this life, it builds a tridness in you, according to Paul. It teaches you patience. It teaches you faith in Christ. I love this phrase. I heard it years ago. I don't know who I heard it from, but I've hung on to it ever since. 
The phrase is, I never learned anything really important when I was comfortable. Because when you're comfortable, it's all good. You're busy eating, drinking, being merry, making jokes, happy times. It's all kumbaya and rainbows. Bluebird of happiness on your shoulder. That's not when you're learning stuff. That's when you're just being happy. But let God throw some trouble at you. Let the doctor use the word cancer. Find it difficult to pay your bills. Let somebody who you really love up and leave you. Guess who you go to? You go running to God. And your faith is built. And your endurance is built. That triedness is built into you. And it's on purpose. It is building character in you where you trust God completely, wholly, implicitly, and him alone. Because there's nowhere else you can go when real trouble hits you. Now, as I said that, everybody in the room was nodding. And I figure if Joni could figure it out, God can figure it out. If he knows that you will come to him during trouble, guess what he's going to do? Soon as you start wandering, because we all wander like the dumb sheep we are, we all wander off and go our own way, and God needs to bring us back. And guess how he does it? Through the trouble that is in Jesus Christ. Where do we get the peace? Jesus Christ. Where do we get the endurance? Jesus Christ. How do we get the kingdom? Jesus Christ. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation, in the kingdom, and perseverance, which are in Jesus, I was on an island called Patmos. And this is the reason why, because of the word of God and because of the testimony of Jesus. At the time that Domitian was reigning, Domitian decided that he was God incarnate at least a god, and insisted that his entire realm would worship him. He constructed temples to himself. In fact, one of those temples existed in Ephesus. And he insisted that people worship him. And then you've got Christians who are saying there's no other god. There's only one god. We'll have no other gods before Yahweh. That's the first and most important commandment. No other gods. And then you've got Caesar saying, I'm God. Well, the Christians resist and say, can't be. And of course, John is a walking, talking example of Jesus Christ. He was actually an apostle of Jesus Christ. He was the one that Christ loved. He was the one who actually saw the miracles of Christ. He's the last living apostle, so he's out there proclaiming in Ephesus, of all places, proclaiming the superiority of Jesus Christ. Well, Domitian's not going to have that. And so he banishes John, hoping to shut him up. And 2,000 years, we're still talking about him. So that worked. Domitian put John on the Isle of Patmos because John declared the word of God. Now, when he said that, what was the word of God? The law and the prophets. The law and the prophets. The Old Testament. The New Testament didn't exist yet. The book of Revelation hadn't been written yet. Chances are the book of John had not been written yet. And so 
When he refers to the word of God, he's referring to what we would call the Old Testament, the scriptures, the Tanakh. And I am on the Isle of Patmos, says John, because of the scriptures and because of the testimony of Jesus Christ. He's walking around using the extant scriptures, the Old Testament, to prove that Jesus is the Christ. And he is declaring Christ openly among Jews and among Gentiles, and Domitian's not going to have it, so Domitian put him on the rock that's called Patmos. Verse 10. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. That is the only place in the entire Bible where you will find the phrase, the Lord's day. We have kind of adopted that phrase and use it as a nickname for Sunday. We now call Sunday the Lord's day. We do find that the early church began meeting on the first day of the week because that was the day of Jesus' resurrection. But this particular vernacular, this particular language, the Lord's day, is only found here in the whole Bible. And so commentators have said that because it is the day that belongs to the Lord, it is the Lord's possessive, the Lord's day, that John may be referring to what we call the day of the Lord. It's the same thing. They are equitable phrases. The day of the Lord or the Lord's day. If that's the case then John is saying, in the vision that you're about to get from me, in the things I'm about to describe to you, I'm going to tell you things that are coming during this time of great tribulation, during this time of trouble, during the outpouring of God's wrath, because the Old Testament prophets all talk about the day of the Lord. So he may be saying that. Or he may be using a completely unique phraseology that he made up that, gee, I saw Jesus, the Lord, and so therefore it's the Lord's day. What we don't know is exactly what he meant by the phrase. But I was on the island and I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet Have you ever seen uh, the stupid YouTube videos of people who sneak up behind somebody with air horns and and they blast them and then that's supposed to be funny and we all, ah, she's so scared. That's what John's describing. That suddenly right behind him, there was this very loud voice, this shockingly loud voice. And he's on an island where there's virtually nobody. And suddenly he hears this voice. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. And it was saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches. To Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Those seven specific churches. Next week, we'll get to the letter to the Ephesians, 
And we'll have to talk about why these seven churches. You'll notice that it does not say write to the church at Philippi. It does not say write to the church of the Thessalonians. In fact, any other church in Asia is not mentioned here. So why these specific seven churches and what is the significance of these seven churches? I think I have mentioned in the last few weeks that John, while he was serving as the bishop of Ephesus, had a tremendous amount of influence over the other six churches because they were all part of a trade route that still exists to this very day that makes a pattern through these exact seven churches in this exact order and then ends up back in Ephesus. So John had a tremendous amount of influence over those seven churches. So it makes sense that Jesus would say, here is a letter to those seven churches. They know you. They know who you are. They know your teaching. And so you are going to present this prophecy to them. And then people start talking about what it means that there are these particular seven churches. And theories have arisen over the last 2,000 years. One of the leading theories, if you read anything on the seven churches of Asia, one of the leading theories is to spiritualize those seven churches and say that the reason they are in this order is because each of these churches individually represent a period of time in the history of the church from the time of its inception at Pentecost until the time of Christ's return. And then they work very hard to apply that standard to each of these churches and the churches through the history of the church. The problem with it is Nobody seems to be able to agree what the exact calendrical cutoffs are. I'm reading out of a Zodiades study Bible at this moment. That's what I have in front of me. In his notes, he writes, These letters to the seven churches are all local churches in Asia Minor, but they were each representative of a particular age in church history. Therefore, in a very marvelous way, the Lord takes churches currently existing at that time and compares their behavior and their circumstances with certain epochs which were yet to appear in church history. And throughout the book of Revelation, the Lord wants to make clear that he is writing the history of the future. My problem with that statement from Zodiades, and I like him, I like his definitions, some of his notes like that one are a little sketchy. The problem is there's nothing in the text that would make you conclude that. And do you really think that when the seven original churches received these letters, do you think anybody read them and said, oh, I know what this is talking about. This is talking about the church during the Reformation. Or, oh, I know what this is talking about. This is talking about the Dark Ages. Or, oh, yeah, this is talking about the church during the persecution of the Great Tribulation to come. Or, no, of course not. However, having said that, because I don't adhere to that theory, but I do think what's written to these seven churches is very, very instructive to us as the church of Jesus Christ. The same way that the Old Testament is not written to us or about us, Paul still says that it was written for our instruction and our learning. 
Same thing with the seven churches of Asia. It's not about us, and yet it's there for our learning and our instruction in righteousness. And as we go through these letters, you're going to see that there is a tremendous amount of instruction right from Jesus about what he expects out of his church. And that's the way that we're going to approach the letters to the seven churches. Verse 12. I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. You may recall in the tabernacle in the wilderness and later in the Holy of Holies in the temple, there was something that we know as a menorah, which is a single candlestick that has seven offshoots, seven candle holders on it. And so some interpreters say that what John has seen here in the seven lampstands is that he has seen a menorah. I don't think that's accurate because Christ is going to be standing in the midst of the lampstands. I don't know how he stands in the midst of a menorah. So I think these are seven individual lampstands, especially considering that Christ himself is going to give us the definition of these lampstands, and these lampstands are representative of the seven churches to whom John is writing. So it is an individual lampstand for each individual church. In fact, Christ even says to these churches that if they don't listen to him, if they don't repent, that he will remove their lampstand. So the removal of that one lampstand doesn't mean that all of them would be removed. However, I will add historically that these churches in Asia Minor, in, do you know where Ephesus is in the world? It's modern-day Turkey, which is right now majority Muslim country. None of these seven churches still exist. Every one of those lampstands was eventually removed. That's why it's important to pay attention to what Jesus says to them in terms of instruction. John turned, verse 12. I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. Having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man. I read for you last week out of the book of Daniel, where Christ is introduced to us as the Son of Man. Very important nomenclature. Yes, he's the Son of God. Yes, he is the incarnate, singular, first and only born of God. But importantly, the hypostatic union, again, under, even though he was God incarnate, he took on a substance, a tent of human flesh that was below him. And when he took on that fleshly body, he took on the phraseology of the son of man. He's the son of God and he's the son of man. And both of those are 100% true. I know, mind-blowing. We need to duct tape our heads closed. It's hard for us to imagine that somebody can be 100% God and 100% human and that that doesn't contradict in some way or make 200% or make some mathematic impossibility. But God is very comfortable with paradox. This is the same God who told us, you get by giving. You go up by going down. You live by dying. And if he wants to say Christ is 200%, I'm with him. Christ is fully God. He didn't give up any of his godhood to become man. And yet, 
he chose to call himself son of man. I am the offspring of human beings. I'm God incarnate. There was one who was like the son of man. He was clothed in a robe, reaching to his feet, and girded across his breast with a golden girdle. That is the dress of an Old Testament priest, particularly the high priest when he would go into the Holy of Holies. It was designated what specific clothing he had to wear before he came in front of God. He had to have the priestly garments on. That's how Jesus is described here. And his head and his hair were white like white wool. Last week, we read Daniel's description of God exactly like this. God had white hair, white as wool, and here Jesus is described as having white hair, white as wool. What does that tell you? When Daniel described it, he called him the Ancient of Days. So his white hair was a designation that he was ancient, that he was ever living, that he had always been. Now Jesus shows up with the same exact description. Why? Because he's God. Yahweh in the Old Testament shares that Godhood with the Trinity. And here yet again is another example of that Trinity walking in shoe leather because Jesus himself is described with the same language that Daniel used to describe Yahweh. But it can also be a description of his purity. He's unspotted. He's unblemished. He is sinless. He is perfect. He is holy. He is righteous. His head and his hair were white, like white wool, like snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. I think it's pretty obvious what John's getting at. Remember the rule. The rule I put in place last week was nobody knows more about what John saw than John does. And John wrote down what he saw. What he saw was Jesus. He recognized him as Jesus. After all, he's the one that Jesus loved. He leaned back on Jesus' breast at the Last Supper. He would know Jesus when he saw him. But now, this is the Jesus that he sees. It's an interesting time for us to be reading this at this moment because the holidays are upon us and over the course of the next month we're going to be seeing manger scenes in our neighborhoods. Oftentimes you're going to see manger scenes with wise men in the manger. The Bible never says the wise men were in the manger. They came and found him when he was about two years old. They found him in the house that he was in. So that's wrong. But the manger scene right up the street from me each year also includes Santa Claus in the manger. Okay, I'm going to go with that's wrong. <laughs> Jesus, baby in the manger. People love that. People love that because it, as long as he's a baby in a manger, then he can't really do anything to me. I can still live the way I want to live. I can still be the way I want to be. Baby in a manger, that's cute. We like it. We'll put it up every Christmas. We'll put it up on our front yard. We'll have little images of it sitting on coffee tables around our house. Baby in a manger. That's not what John saw. He sees the Lord Almighty. He sees the Lord Supreme. He sees the one whose eyes are like fire. 
This is more than just a piercing gaze. This is the one who sees everything all the time. This is the one who knows everything all the time. This is the one who knows everything you've ever done, everywhere you've ever been, everything you've ever thought, the intentions of your heart, your missed opportunities. This is the one you're dealing with, the Lord Almighty. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and his feet are like burnished brass when it's caused to glow in a furnace. So not just brass-like in their appearance, but glowing, just as all of him seems to be emitting this light and this fire and this white as snow. I mean, it's a glorious thing. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. Anybody here ever been to a really large waterfall? Anybody been to like Niagara Falls or anything? Have you tried to have a conversation when you're under the water? Yeah, it's ridiculous because the water is so loud. And John trying to find something to compare this voice with. Because this voice is so loud. This voice is so majestic. This voice is so overwhelming that John can only compare it to rushing water. It's so loud. His head and his hair are white as white wool, like snow. His eyes are like a flame of fire. His feet are like burnished bronze when it's caused to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. That's a majestic image right there. God incarnate. And in his right hand, he held seven stars. Now we're going to skip ahead for just a moment to verse 20. Because Jesus is going to interpret the seven stars for us. We don't even need to interpret One of my complaints with how people handle the book of Revelation is that there's just way too much interpreting going on, and people like to present their interpretations as somehow factually true. What we know for certain is John saw Jesus as the sovereign, mighty Lord that he is, and in his hand he had seven stars. That's what John saw. Nobody gets to argue with that. And then Jesus interprets it for us. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my hand, oh, God, he's going to tell us what it means. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. The seven lampstands are the seven churches. Okay, so we know what the lampstands represent. These are the seven churches, which is why later, when he says that he's going to remove a lampstand, we can understand what that means. He's going to close that church down. And then there are these seven, the translation is angels. It is a Greek word, angelos. Angelos just moved into the English language as a transliteration rather than a translation. Had it been actually translated... The word angelos just means messenger. But in a transliterated form, it becomes angels. And then we start thinking of people with harps and wings that fly around and, you know, angels. But what Jesus is saying here is 
I'm in charge of these seven churches. These seven churches belong to me. After all, Jesus himself said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So he is in the enterprise of building his own church and these seven lampstands represent these seven churches that John is writing to and Jesus is right there in the midst. That's where I want him, by the way. I want him right here in the midst of GCA because without him, we can't do anything. So there he is in the midst and in his hand are the seven messengers, the seven pastors, the seven preachers, whatever you want to call them, the seven messengers to those seven churches. So how in control is he? He's in the midst of his churches, and he holds the messengers in his hand. That's enough to scare anybody. Now, by the way, just to demonstrate what I was just saying about the word angelos, there are other places in the New Testament where the translation is angels, but it means messengers. For instance, in Galatians 4.14, Paul writing says, You did not despise that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, nor did you express contempt for me because of the way he looked and the way his body was beaten up, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. Now, Paul is obviously not saying, you received me as an angelic figure. What he's saying is you received me as what I am, a messenger of God. And so this use of that word angelos in the Greek is not confusing. It's just when you transliterate it into the English that people get confused about it. The seven churches belong to Jesus Christ. He is in the midst of his churches and the angels of those churches, the messengers of those churches are in his very hand. Now we don't have to argue about what that means. Back to verse 16. And in his right hand, he held seven stars. Out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. We're all told, don't gaze directly at the sun. Don't look right at the sun. That'll damage your eyes. John trying to find something to compare the radiance of Jesus. His white, snow-white hair. His eyes of fire. Dressed like a priest with feet like burnished bronze. Symbols of judgment. All of this is wrapped up in the image of Christ that John is witnessing, and on top of that, he is radiating with a light. Okay, now the description of God is that God encases himself in a light that no man approaches. And now here is Jesus encasing himself in light. Direct connection to the fact that he is God. He is God incarnate. And John is seeing this magnificent glowing image And so he naturally does what anybody else would do when I saw him. I fell down like I was dead. Yeah. If you see that, if suddenly that door behind Tom flings open and he walks in, oh, you're on your face immediately. Just 
bowing and worshiping before him. Let's talk about this two-edged sword for just a moment. Notice that the two-edged sword, which was an implement of battle that the Roman centurions used to use, it was sharpened on both sides so that it would cut both ways. So that in battle you could just swing that, no matter which way you swung it, it was going to do some damage. And that's what John sees coming out of the mouth of Christ. What does that mean? Well, the most obvious reference, since it's coming out of his mouth, would be to Hebrews 4.12. If you want, turn there, because I'm going to read a fairly long passage out of the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 4, I'm starting in verse 12. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. I don't think it's a coincidence that the writer of Hebrews would describe the very word of God. And where does the word of God proceed from? Well, from the mouth of Christ. And so out of his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword. I think that is the very word of God, which the writer of Hebrews goes on and says that this two-edged sword, this word of God that is living and active, penetrates as far as a division of soul and spirit, both joints and marrow. And it's able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And there is no creature, not one, no creature that is hidden from his sight. For all things are open and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must answer. Well, that's very much like his flaming eyes. I describe them as a piercing gaze who could look right through you and know everything about you and who knew everything all at once. It's the same way that the writer of Hebrews describes him. His word is active. It's not a dead word. And it's powerful. It's alive. And it's sharper than anything you can imagine because it's able to divide between soul and spirit. Where exactly is the division between soul and spirit? Nobody knows. God knows. And his word can make that kind of exact cut on you. Here, I'll put it this way. I'll make it less mysterious. Has anybody ever been reading the Bible or listening to a sermon where, boy, that was exactly what you needed at that moment. And you heard it, and it changed you. Or you read it, and you said, where has that been the last 30 times I read this? And some part of the Bible will just leap out at you. Well, that's because it's alive. How many people in this room have ever read a book? <laughs> that better be every hand in here. Paul, I'm embarrassed for you. Just so you know. Yeah. And how many of you have ever, having read a book, went back to that same book again and were surprised by it? The Bible does that. The Bible will say what it says to you, to you personally, to you directly, where you can read it and it's like, cutting away at you, shaping you, forming you, doing surgery on you. That's what the Word of God does, according to the writer of Hebrews. 
and there's nobody, no creature that's hidden from his sight. All things are open and laid bare to the eyes of Jesus Christ, him to whom we must answer. Therefore, since we have a great high priest, what's he dressed as? A high priest. The writer of Hebrews says, since we have this great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, because that's a fact, let us hold on to our confession. Let us hold firmly to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things just as we are, and yet without sin. That means he's a son of man. He's flesh and blood like we are. And therefore, he knows how hard life can be. Therefore, he knows what it is to be tempted because he himself has been tempted in all ways like we are. And yet he resides without sin. Whereas we might fall to the temptation, he perfectly resisted the temptation. But he's not afraid to call us brothers because he shared flesh and blood with us. That's why he is God incarnate. Therefore, let's approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace for help in our time of need. I like that, therefore. I trust in the throne of grace because I know who my high priest is, and I know what his word is capable of doing, and I know he sees everything I am and think and do, and at the same time, he's sympathetic to me. He knows what it is to be flesh and blood. He knows my failures. He knows that life down here on planet Earth is full of trouble, full of tribulation. This life is difficult. And he knows that because he shares flesh and blood with us. That makes him a perfect high priest because he can sympathize with our estate and he knows that we're just dust. Well, that's very similar to what we're reading here. Back in the book of Revelation, verse 14 His head and his hair were white, like white wool, like snow. And his eyes were like flames of fire. And his feet were like burnished bronze when it's been caused to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell down at his feet like a dead man. And he, boy, here's grace, here's mercy. He laid his right hand upon me, saying, do not be afraid. Every one of us, if we saw him come through that door, would fall down in fear. And if you wouldn't, there's something desperately wrong. Fear is what we would all feel knowing who we are, knowing our sinful estate. Isaiah speaking to God would say, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. And then God sends an angel with a coal from his altar to touch the lips of Isaiah. The angel says, see, this has touched you. Now Isaiah can speak to God. Okay, so Jesus shows up looking like that and having those piercing eyes where he knows everything about you, everything you've thought, everything you've done. He knows all your sin. He knows your depravity. He knows your worthlessness. Fall down in front of him. And what do you find? Grace. And he reaches out with that right hand of honor. 
Wow. <laughs> Preached myself happy. He reaches out with that right hand. Says, don't be afraid. It's me. It's your Savior. Don't be afraid. I am the first. I am the last. I am the living one. Very interesting use of that word one. I am the singular living one. I am the only truly living one. I was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. What is the primary motivating fear here in human life? Dying. Death, dying. And where do you go when you die? And how scary is the grave? And when you go to the place of the dead, what happens next? It's good to know that Jesus says, I have the keys to all that. I lock it, I unlock it. And nobody can unlock what I lock, and nobody can unlock what I've locked up. I'm in charge. I judge the quick and the dead. I have the keys to death, hell, and the grave. And I'm the one who's ever alive. I am your Lord. I am your Savior. I'm the first and the last. If he is the beginning and he is the end and he is everything in between, that means that no matter where you go, no matter what you do, no matter what you encounter in this lifetime, he's there. He's right there in the midst of it. Whatever trouble you're going through, whatever tribulation you're going through, he'll bring you the peace to endure it because there's a kingdom coming. He gives you everything you need to look forward to what he has prepared for you, which is why he said, I go to prepare a place for you. In my father's house, there are many dwelling places. And if it were not so, I would have told you. That's the one who reaches out with his right hand and says, don't be afraid. It's me. I am the living one. I was dead. Behold, I am alive forevermore. And death and Hades is all up to me. I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things which you have seen. This is the outline in my introduction to the book of Revelation, and I really am nearly done. Three more sentences, and I'll be out of your way. I said this is the outline of the book of Revelation. Write, therefore, the things which you have seen. John did that. We call that the Gospel of John. He wrote all the things that he had seen. When he was with Jesus, Jesus' own ministry, he wrote all that. And write the things that are. That's the messages to the churches. He's going to write to each of the seven churches that are extant at that very moment over which he has all this authority and influence, and he's going to write these letters to these seven churches. And then write the things which will take place after these things. John is on the Isle of Patmos during the reign of Domitian. That means he's on Patmos between 92 and 96 AD somewhere. So whatever he says is future is future to 96 AD. In other words, if you can't find the rest of what's described in the book of Revelation, 
the future time of trouble, the day of the Lord, all this stuff that we're going to see described in the book of Revelation, if you can't find it somewhere in human history between right now and 96 AD, it hasn't happened yet. Write, therefore, the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw on my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the messengers of the seven churches. The seven lampstands are the seven churches. Next week, we will begin with to the messenger of the church at Ephesus, right. And what you're going to see in each of those letters is that Jesus makes direct reference to some characteristic of his own that we read this morning, which is why John had to go through the detailed description of saying, this is who I saw, because Jesus is then going to make references back to, I'm that one. And the more reverent you are toward that one, the more afraid you are of that one, the more you are overwhelmed by the grace and the mercy and the kindness of that one, the more you can feel the impact of the fact that that one refers back to himself that way and then says, listen to me, because I'm that guy. Next week, we'll start reading those letters. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.